Welcome to the Sharid Sedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Sharit Sedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. If you've ever watched a professional sports draft, you know that the first round of picks are full of high drama. The top college foreign and amateur athletes are waiting in anticipation along with millions of fans to find out which professional team will serve as their new home. The announcers make their predictions in the minutes leading up to the pick and give their analysis in the minutes after. But once that first round is over, the drama goes away a bit, as do most of the viewers. And only the most die-hard of fans remain to see where the next generation of athletes will be playing or not playing, as many of these later round picks don't have the same level of guaranteed success as their first round counterparts. And so it was on June 26, 2014, when the Denver Nuggets drafted Nikola Jokic, a center from Serbia, with the 41st pick of the NBA draft. And the pick was announced at the bottom of the screen during a Taco Bell commercial. <laughs> yes, that's a quesarito, a burrito wrapped in a quesadilla, recently retired, I learned. And I promise that will be my last food reference for the next 24 hours. But the fast just started, so we should be okay. Now, before I continue, let me acknowledge the risk that beginning this evening's sermon with sports runs that I might lose some of you, Rabbi Weiss included. Rabbi, this is basketball. That I'm, that's the one with the hoops. Yes. But I hope those of you who feel about sports the way Rabbi Weiss does will bear with me as this also has the benefit of perhaps connecting with some of you in a new way. So for those of you who still tell me how much you enjoyed my 2014 sermon that began with fantasy football, this one is for you. So for a little context, I'm one of those fans who is watching the scrolling headlines at the bottom of the screen to see who my team picks in those later rounds. And... I have been a Denver Nuggets fan for my entire life. My parents would always take us to a couple games a year, which was always a special treat. And here's a little-known Rabbi Simon fact. I was the sports reporter for a kid's radio station throughout middle school and high school. 
And the Sunday following my bar mitzvah service, the station arranged for me to sit with the media courtside as the Nuggets played the Washington Bullets, going into the locker room after the game to conduct interviews. For those who remember Dikembe Mutombo, he was the star of the team at the time, and speaking to him is a moment I'll never forget. We won't talk about which day of that weekend uh, was, was more special. Definitely it was the bar mitzvah service, but, <laughs> but that Sunday was special as well. Now, being a Nuggets fan hasn't always been easy. While we made the playoffs a couple times during those Matembo years, we never went beyond the second round of the playoffs during my childhood. Now, I do remember Danny Shays, who was with the team until I was eight, coming to our temple for high holy day services. You couldn't miss him. He was the tall one. <laughs> the season I remember most, however, was my junior year of high school in which the Nuggets achieved the second-worst record in NBA history at the time with 11 wins and 72 losses. You couldn't give away tickets that year, but I couldn't get enough. And there were several times that I would be offered tickets, and my parents would let me drive to the game. Parking was easy, after all. I remember going by myself several times, no, I couldn't get anyone else to go with me. And I would often take homework with me. It was actually a pretty quiet place. <laughs> Most memorably, I remember sitting at half court in the 10th row, reading Pride and Prejudice, taking notes for my test the next day, inevitably watching the Nuggets lose again. I think I didn't do terribly on the test, if I remember well, but don't ask me anything about the book today. So needless to say, on June 12th of this year, when the Nuggets won their first championship in franchise history, this rabbi was pretty excited. And when Nikola Jokic, who had been league MVP the two previous seasons, was given the NBA Finals MVP, that's most valuable player, <laughs> that evening, he became the lowest draft pick ever to win either award. And I joined many longtime fans thinking about that evening nine years prior and that Taco Bell commercial. Now that evening, the analysis that came when the broadcast returned wasn't much more complimentary than the draft pick's placement. Jokic had promise, everyone knew that. He was a good scorer and passer, but there was a problem. He definitely didn't look like a professional athlete. He was out of shape. He admittedly couldn't do more than a few push-ups, which he said was an improvement from a few years prior when he couldn't even do one push-up. And most scouts felt that whatever success he had had said more as a negative about those he was playing against than positives about him. So how did he do it? Well, after the draft, he came to the US, and while other draftees were playing in what's called the Summer League, a showcase for young players in Las Vegas, the Nuggets decided that Jokic would be better off spending the summer with trainers. As Rafal Yuch, the scout who discovered him, put it, that summer was the first time he was taught anything about nutrition, sleeping, recovery. 
He had a chance to connect with our trainers. It planted a seed for taking care of his body for the future. That's when he really changed his approach, I think. This is our Yom Kippur lesson number one from Nikola Jokic. He still doesn't look like a professional athlete. In addition to his nickname, the Joker, he's also been called the dad bod god. <laughs> but he learned how to take the body he was given and make the most of it. Jokic does what his trainers ask of him. He's known as the hardest worker in the gym and sticks to a strict diet. While his teammates enjoy fried food after a road game in Memphis, he still eats the chicken, rice, and vegetables prescribed by his trainers. That will be the last time I mention food. <laughs> Philippe Eichenberger, the Nuggets' head strength and conditioning coach, said, to understand Nicola's mind, he's the kind of guy that if he tells you, I'm going to do something, and he looks in your eyes like, I'm going to do this, he will. As we think about the change we hope to see in ourselves in the coming year, changing the core of who we are isn't necessary. We, too, can learn how to do better with what we have in so many ways, and our potential is endless as well. But that's not the reason I wanted to talk about the Joker this evening. His physique is surely still not the reason why he's the MVP he is. Jokic's ability to score from anywhere on the court, no matter who's covering him, was not a fluke in 2014 as some of those scouts felt it was. And he's only improved from there. Now, I think we are about to make high holy day history as the first time ever basketball highlights have been shown during a Yom Kippur service, but I want you to get a sense of what I'm talking about. Splitting two defenders and getting an end-one opportunity. No one getting in. Range from the three-point line. Found it right there. Oh! Inside! Yes! Stand up. Watch this and watch Fox come. Fox comes down. Okay, there's one more. Jokic. In the power. Here it goes. Got it. Got it. Denver has won. Shot clock at four. Jokic has to put it up. Falling away. Puts it up. Bang! Nikola Jokic. They cut it to 11. Jokic just gets it off in time. It's up. Oh, it's good. Of course it goes in. <laughs> we don't have any Lakers fans, do we? Oh. <laughs> so he's pretty amazing. But what makes Jokic such a special player, what makes his game stand out above all others, is that while he's seven foot one, while he can shoot a three-pointer from outside or push his way inside, overcoming any defenders, Nikola Jokic is one of the best passers ever to play the game. In basketball, a player is credited with an assist when a pass leads directly to the player being passed to, scoring a basket. One more set of highlights. And you'll see in these examples the way in which Jokic finds a teammate in the exact right place at the exact right time, 
often when the players he's passing to don't even know the position they're in, and the basket almost scores itself. It's just buried, that is, behind the back to Chandler! It was actually over the head to Chandler, and a score. Young was trying to finish a speed-point lead. Jokic, they double oh, behind the back, oh, there it was! Basically, behind the back, over the shoulder. Where's he sitting? Okay, he saw him right there. He knows he's before the two. In the Jokic. Gets it back. Gets behind oh. the back! Wizardry! Oh! Oh, look at that. Even Rabbi Weiss is impressed. <laughs> While the top passer on a team is usually the point guard, often a shorter, quicker player, Jokic has been called a point center running the game for the Nuggets in a way almost no one as big as he is has ever done. Jokic is often quoted saying, an assist makes two people happy, while a point only makes one guy happy. Clearly, with those passes, he was making many more people happy than that. ESPN commentator and former coach Jeff Van Gundy said the following about Jokic. He gives up shots he could take to try to make his teammates more successful. I think he's, as invest, he's invested as much in their success as they are. When you have a best player who willingly and happily gives part of his game up for the betterment of the team, then you have something special. It was after game three of the finals that Van Gundy introduced a new term for Jokic. He said he's just an absolute giver. He is a, quote, servant leader. It's beautiful to watch. That's why I wanted to talk about Nikola Jokic. The term servant leader originated in a 1970 essay by Robert K. Greenleaf, who was an executive at AT&T at the time. He wrote, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. Then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. That person is sharply different from one who is leader first, perhaps because of the need to assuage an unusual power drive or to acquire material possessions. Greenleaf continues, the difference manifests itself in the care taken by the servant to make sure that other people's highest priority needs are being served. The best test and most difficult to administer is do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? And what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit, or at least not be further deprived? Servant leadership has become a buzzword in the business world, especially as millennials and Gen Zers are expecting a certain freedom empowerment, and mentoring that previous generations did not, and they're changing workplaces more freely when they're not given them. Now, whether or not Greenleaf truly created the concept of servant leadership 
is up for debate. Monarchs such as King Frederick the Great of Prussia called himself the first servant of the state in the late 18th century. And whether or not it was truly practiced, this would often be the claim of both monarchs and politicians. The Christian reader might point to Jesus as the first servant leader, exemplified by the washing of the disciples' feet and this passage from the book of Mark, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, chief rabbi of the Orthodox community in the United Kingdom from 1991 to 2013, wrote that he believes servant leadership originated in the Torah, but it needs to be understood differently. He wrote, Greenleaf held that the leader is the servant of those he leads. In Judaism, a leader is the servant of God, not of the people. But neither is the leader their master. Only God is that. Nor is the leader above them. The leader and the led are equal. The leader is simply their teacher, guide, advocate, and defender. The leader's task is to remind them endlessly of their vocation and inspire them to be true to it. The traditional leader, according to Greenleaf, gains their power by sitting at the top of a pyramid. While servant leadership could be interpreted by flipping the pyramid on its head, with the leader completely subservient to those they lead. But rather than the leader sitting at either the top or the bottom, rather than seeing a pyramid in either direction, Sachs suggests that we can see a menorah instead, not the Hanukkah menorah with one raised candle, ironically called the shamash, the servant, but another time, but rather that menorah which stood in the temple the one we see in our sanctuary, with seven lights all sitting level with each other. The leader's job in this model is not to sit above or below those they lead, but next to them, using their own strengths as a leader to help find the strengths in those with whom they sit, neither seen as subservient to the other, but each working together to achieve a higher purpose, which for Sachs means serving God. Eighteen times in the Torah, Sachs notes, Moses is described as Eved Adonai, the servant of God. And Sachs calls this title the highest honor Moses is given. But he continues, Note that we are all God's servants. The Torah says so. To me, the Israelites are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. Sachs continues, so it is not that Moses was a different kind of being than we are called on to be. It is that he epitomized it to the utmost degree. The less there is of self in one who serves God, the more there is of God. Moses was a part of the people. He wasn't washing anyone's feet, but he wasn't expecting anyone else to wash his feet either. He was leading from within the people in order to help that people serve its higher purpose. Nikola Jokic would always deflect when asked about winning awards like MVP, saying he wasn't worried about those things. 
he was playing to make his team better and win games. Surely Nikola Jokic doesn't see himself as less than his teammates, but unlike so many superstars, he doesn't see himself as above them either. He is one candle on the menorah that is the Denver Nuggets. And over the past several years, the Nuggets have created a team around his skill set and team mentality. When a player on the team has complained about not getting enough minutes or not scoring enough, they have quickly found themselves on the bench or ultimately traded to another team if they didn't catch up to the selflessness of their leader. A mentality that paid off with this past season's championship and a future that looks bright against teams built around superstars often concerned with padding their own stats than creating the team chemistry the Nuggets have shown. So where does this leave us? For surely this teaching doesn't only apply within a business, on a basketball team, or in the Israelites' wilderness. Nor is it only for those with the title of leader. For some, to see themselves as equal lights on that menorah is an exercise of humility, requiring oneself to take a step down. But for others, it means recognizing that their strengths, while different than those they might look up to, are equally important and necessary in serving that greater purpose. And imagine a world in, when, in which we each saw the other as equal candles on the same menorah, those struggling to make ends meet, those seeking refuge from war-torn countries, those living in a tough part of town, those seeking medical care that has been placed out of their reach, whether in our family, our community, our city, or a place we can't even fathom. What might it mean for us to be the ones looking for the assist, passing up on our own shot to create opportunities for others? And how do we know when taking the shot ourselves is the way to make the biggest impact, when creating our own opportunity is, in fact, the best option for all in the long run? On Yom Kippur, as Rabbi Weiss so beautifully described, we stand with our community and communities around the world and we say, we sinned, we missed the mark. And as we go through the list of possible transgressions, we say each of them together in the plural, we did this, we did that. We stand together as equals before God and before each other, supporting one another as we do. Very few of us are first-round draft picks, with all of the skills and tools to succeed coming to us naturally. We all make mistakes, and we all can improve. But as we look ahead to the coming year, may we find ways in which we can build on our strengths and build up the strengths of those around us. May we think about what it means to use those strengths to be servants, not to each other, but to the greater good, to do that which God would expect of us, to keep all lights on that menorah burning brightly, as they too, we pray, strive to do God's will. For when we do, no one will be most valuable. No one will be more valuable than any other. And we will be that much closer, we pray, to a world of peace. Kem Yehi May this be God's will. Amen.